what first got me interested in parent support or parent education was that I was a high school teacher and girls athletic coach. And I love working with adolescents. But the more I got to know these students, these kids, I realized how much their parents really needed support too. Mm -hmm. Um, And then in our own family, we had a child develop an eating disorder. And, you know, before that happened, I thought I knew a lot about eating disorders. I thought I knew how to spot them, how to try to prevent them. And I really knew just enough to be dangerous. So I had Mm -hmm. to learn a lot the hard way. And it's become my passion to help other parents learn an easier way. So if I can help, you know, lower the risk for someone's child to develop an eating disorder, like that gives that purpose to that suffering that we went through as a family. All right. So today we're going to be talking about dad's roles in supporting a healthy relationship with food and body. And to do that, I have an outstanding guest for you today. So I have Una Hansen. And she helps parents and guardians raise kids who have a healthy relationship with food and their body. And in addition to her private practice as a parent coach, Una also works as a family mentor at Equip, which is an eating disorder treatment program. Una holds a master's degree in educational psychology and a master's in English. And her work has been featured widely, including places like CNN, USA Today, Good Morning America, U.S. News and World Report, Today, and People, and then now the Men's Intuition Podcast. So uh, we are uh, excited to be able to have you on today, Una. So welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, so why don't you just, uh, why don't we just dive in and and maybe you can tell us anything else about yourself that you'd like to share and and kind of what it is that fuels your passion for for your work as a parent coach, specifically in the area of relationship with food, body image, and eating disorder recovery? Yeah. So what first got me interested in parent support or parent education was that I was a high school teacher and girls athletic coach. And I love working with adolescents. But the more I got to know these students, these kids, I realized how much their parents really needed support too. Mm -hmm. Um, And then in our own family, we had a child develop an eating disorder. And you know, before that happened, I thought I knew a lot about eating disorders. I thought I knew how to spot them, how to try to prevent them. And I really knew just enough to be dangerous. So I had mm-hmm. to learn a lot the hard way. And it's become my passion to help other parents learn an easier way. So if I can help, you know, lower the risk for someone's child to develop an eating disorder, like that gives that purpose to that suffering that we went through as a family. Um, and we can't prevent every eating disorder. I wish that we could. Mm-hmm. But I think getting this education about eating disorders, about diet culture, about weight stigma, about food rules, um, it also helps families just have more peaceful meal times, more connection. Um, and in the unfortunate you know, event of a child developing an eating disorder, a family with this kind of education is going to spot that much faster and get the help they need sooner, which, you know, again, it's going to help make outcomes um, more favorable sooner. So uh, I'm all about prevention, early detection, and then giving parents the, the, the information they need if their child, you know, is facing that serious illness. Yeah, that's that's great, and that I think that's often the case is that our lived experience is often what drives our our passions for for things like this. It's uh, experiencing it and going through it without that understanding before and. 
you know, I, I kind of think back to my attitude toward mental health before my first wife passed away in 2010 was very much the, well, you know, if you're depressed, just stop being depressed, <laughs> kind of a, a mindset that I'm quite embarrassed about. But, you know, when you go through it, it suddenly you experience it in a different way and it, it opens your eyes to a bit more of the reality of the situation. And and then you have a more empathy, compassion, understanding, and and then are able to to kind of help others through that. And I think that's great that that's what you're, what you're doing. Um, you know, I actually had a different question, but right now as we, it just popped in my mind to, that I'd like to address. It's, you, you said that there's, you know, we can't prevent all eating disorders. And I think there's this misconception that, that when a child develops an eating disorder, that it's the parent's fault in a lot of ways. And maybe we can start off by talking about that before we go into this, because I want to make sure I don't forget to to get that one out there. Yeah, I think it's a very powerful myth in our culture, and it was perpetuated by treatment professionals for a long time, right? Mm-hmm. The assumption was that um, parents, especially mothers, were to blame if their child developed an eating disorder. Um, children were removed from their homes, kind of as like a general rule, let's mm-hmm. give them treatment. Um and really cutting families out of the process. That's gotten a lot better, but I think there's still vestiges of that belief floating around in our culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I've known many people who had an eating disorder who very much felt that their parents played a role in the development of their eating disorder. So I, I'm not saying that someone's individual experience wasn't shaped right. by something that happened at home. And for some people, it's an important part of the healing process to kind of identify, blame, maybe forgive, mm-hmm. right? Um, but as someone who works in the you know field of supporting parents, I, I don't really see an upside as a general rule to assume parents are at fault. Mm-hmm. Um, parents are always doing the best they can. And especially for um, adolescents with eating disorders, parent involvement or guardian involvement, family involvement can be crucial to recovery. So if parents feel like, did I cause this? it's going to be harder for them to kind of activate and feel motivated and empowered to help their child recover. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's nuanced. Um, yeah, I think we do know that, you know, a family environment can shape beliefs around food, can shape um, beliefs around the importance of physical appearance or athletic performance. So parents do have an influence. Um but I wouldn't draw a straight line from like a parent causing a child's eating disorder. If I'm going to put blame anywhere, it's on our culture, on weight stigma, on diet culture, on the pressures that parents feel to convey what they think are helpful messages about food mm-hmm. and bodies that actually end up end up backfiring in terms of the child's health. Yeah, that's a great way to 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 put that. I think that's that's so important that to understand it is very nuanced because it's it's very easy to look at these things in the black and white, uh, in, in a black and white way, whether it's the, the blame is all on the parent or that the, that the blame is all on the child. And, you know, that, that it's that they've done all of these things wrong when there's so many factors that, that can come into play. And that's true for mental health. You know, when you have children who end up developing mental health issues that aren't eating disorder, because eating disorders are a mental health issue, but, uh, any kind of mental health issue, it's, not necessarily your fault, but at the same time, it's good to identify those things that maybe we can change and that we can uh, begin to approach in a different way. And so I guess that's kind of what I want to focus the most, the the rest of our conversation on is kind of 
what it is that we can do to help without harming and maybe undo some of the things that maybe we've done in a way that wasn't conducive to a, a positive, healthy relationship with food and body and all of those kinds of things. And then specifically, uh, kind of what uh, what us dads can can do if there's some specific things that you've encountered in your work with with uh, parents. So what are some of the the biggest challenges that you face when working with a family when when first starting to work with a family? I mean, I think it's diet culture and weight stigma. Mm-hmm. I, I think that is the underlying kind of force that that drives a lot of the rules about food, um, fears about food, um, beliefs about exercise. Um, and so it's really these larger cultural forces that mm-hmm. can feel kind of overwhelming. And I know we can all start to make changes, unlearn some things. And make our homes more of a safe haven from those forces and educate ourselves and our kids about how to navigate the real world. Because we can't bubble wrap our kids mm-hmm. from weight stigma or diet culture. I mean, you'd have to live in a cave, I guess, um, at, you know, which I guess that's an option. But uh, for the for the most of us, we're going to want to really give our kids the tools to navigate. Um, yeah, the comment from the coach or the teacher or the grandparent or Um, maybe a co-parent, right? Maybe you're in two households, Mm -hmm. kind of how we navigate that. So um, yeah, I really, I, you know, to your point about any mental illness, I think it is natural for parents to wonder like, what did I do? Um, And I think I, again, I would never blame a parent. And I know every parent who has a child develop a mental illness has to learn a lot of new skills to help their child. Mm -hmm. So it's not like, Oh, I can't affect this at all. Like there's nothing I can do Throw out my hands. Let me leave it to the professionals. And there are times where you have to do that in a a crisis situation. Um, But for ongoing healing and recovery, parents are going to have to learn things and make changes. And that can be really uncomfortable. Um, So finding support, a community, whether that's um, an online community, a real, you know, your friends that are kind of on the same journey with you, um, Mm -hmm. whether it's, yeah, Facebook groups, things like that. um, I think, finding that support and community so you're not swimming upstream all by yourself. Yeah, I love what you said about making the home a safe a, a safe space. So making the home that place where the diet culture stuff is almost non-existent as much as possible because knowing that they're going to be going out in the world exposed to it on a constant basis, um, probably not comfortable necessarily going against the flow, especially for teenagers. And, you know, they're just trying to, not make waves in many cases, not stand out too much. And, and so uh, having that place at home where they just don't have to worry about somebody questioning their body size or their, their food choices or their, you know, their relationship with exercise or all those kinds of things seems like such a powerful thing, which is unfortunately absent in a lot of homes. And like you said, it's not necessarily the fault of the parents. We're just conditioned to to think that way. We're all conditioned to think that, well, bigger bodies are not healthy, smaller bodies are healthier, that this is the way, you know, it, these foods are good for you, these foods are bad for you. And so it, it can be really difficult to to know how to navigate that. Um, are there any specific uh, common challenges or obstacles that that you encounter when getting dads in particular on board with the, the kind of the implementation of different recommendations and strategies and, and really it's like setting up this safe space at home. 
Yeah, it's a great question. And let's call it the fact that I'm a mom, I'm a woman talking mm-hmm. about this. This is my perspective from the dads I've worked with over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I realized we might have to fall into some generalizations. So I just want to call that out that um, everything we talk about here may not apply to every dad. Um, but I hope there's some nuggets that that resonate with with folks listening. And yeah, well, let me just um, say, not, you, know, you know, I, let me just say real quick, I think that the female perspective on this is often uh, really helpful because us guys can tend to be in a guy echo chamber. And I, just like women, I think can have that when they have a, a another perspective come in, I think that can be so helpful. And that's one of the reasons why I specifically wanted, wanted you, because I know that you'd bring that great perspective. So didn't mean to cut you off, but I just yeah, wanted to no, emphasize thanks. that there. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. I think, um, I think one of the challenges, and I know you've talked about this, um, is that um, a lot of moms are coming into these thing, these discussions with kind of decades of practice talking about why diets don't work and body image, that women are given a vocabulary, right, and a permission to talk about these challenges. For men, that's less common, right, to express body image distress like when you're hanging out with the guys, like that's probably not going to be, you know, a typical conversation. I think mm-hmm. as guys get into middle age, sometimes there's self-deprecating humor, right? About like, oh, I've got the dad bod now or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, what have you. Um, but it's not necessarily a vulnerable conversation where guys are supporting each other through this. Um, and so women just have more practice talking about these things. And also, women have been targeted by diet and wellness culture like our whole lives. And for a lot of men, again, depending on the age, um, this might be a more recent experience, right? The diet and wellness culture, I would say in the last 20 years, really has like realized, oh my gosh, there's like half the population we could be making money off of. Like, we're not going to call it a diet. We're going to call it biohacking or yeah. performance enhancing or intermittent fasting um, we're going to package the same, you know, powders and shakes in a black container with like big X's on it. Like it's this very like athletic performance, um, you know, masculine thing mm-hmm. to do. And that's relatively new outside of like the maybe bodybuilding bodybuilding world, like mm-hmm. from the eighties. Yeah. Um, so, um, and what's interesting is the the messaging to men over these last 20 years has been hasn't been about appearance as much. It's been about wellness, performance, longevity. Um, and so it can feel like, oh yeah, this makes sense. Like I'm interested in the science of this. I'm like, I want to optimize my health. Like who wouldn't? Um, whereas women, and ge- again, in general, you know, like have been on the cabbage soup diet, slim fast, the special K, dieting for prom, and then wellness culture came in and made it seem like, oh, it's good for your health. But it's like, we kind of do all along. We, this is just the same thing repackaged. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're we're kind of over it. Like, we're sick of it. <laughs> um, so in some ways, women are just coming in with more experience, maybe eyes wider open to kind of this shape-shifting marketing of diets. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, see it as um, like as a social issue, right? It's not... Um, this sort of like gender inequality issue, right? That women have been kind of the appearance focus has been so, so prevalent. Now there's definitely appearance pressures on men too. And Mm -hmm. I think that has really exploded during this 
wellness mm-hmm. culture, performance culture um, piece. And we're seeing that in, in more and more boys developing eating disorders mm-hmm. um, and, and men, you know, adult men as well. So men knowing that, look, I might be coming to this um, with less background knowledge, less prior experience, less, less of a comfort level. Uh, I don't have all the words for all of these things. So giving yourself a lot of grace and knowing like you're kind of like kind of being dropped. Like if diet culture is like the planet we've been living on, when you start learning about anti-diet intuitive eating and health at every size, it's like a whole nother planet. And you're learning a new language, a new framework, a new culture. So give yourself grace. Like you wouldn't learn a new language overnight. Um, and I know again, for like a, maybe a guy who's feeling sort of competitive, I want to get this right. That can be really uncomfortable, right? That there's going to be this sort of like awkward phase of, mm-hmm. you know, going kind of back and forth between these two planets. Well, everything you said there just really resonates with what I hear from the guys that I work with and in our community group that we have and in one-on-one conversations and is that 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 language that uh how to express that um we it, it manifests we we talk about the same kinds of body image issues that I talked about with women when I was working with men and women mainly when which actually at the time was mostly women because they were the ones looking for help until I really emphasized working with men um but they manifest differently. There is usually something that's something else driving it, uh, their their body dissatisfaction. And so it's really uh, interesting how I, I think it's important what you pointed out there with the vocabulary. I think that's a, a big part of it to learning how to express that. And and um, and it's going so much against what other guys are talking about, you know, that whole you don't want to be a beta. Oh my gosh! You know, you, you're everybody's supposed to be an alpha male, right? And if you're not, then then you're talked about as being a beta, and that's like this bad thing. And and you have things like seventy five hard, which it's not that there's no value in in you know developing discipline and and uh, determination and grit and that kind of thing. But when it's emphasized at such a level, and that if you aren't aspiring to that, then you're then you're a beta, you know that kind of a thing. Just as over and over this this uh idea is perpetuated and i think one of the other things that makes it challenging for men is that so many of the voices in this space talking about these are are women i mean i learned everything i know about intuitive eating and health at every size and the non-diet approach from women and maybe Aaron Flores <laughs> i mean that's basically you know that's kind of like the the one guy that i think i I learned some things from, and then a few other guys that I interacted with over the course of time. But it, in general, it's been all women, and they're talking from a, a female perspective. And I think that can be really difficult for a lot of guys. Um, ha- have they expressed that to you too, when when maybe working with dads uh, initially, especially? Yeah, and I think you know it's mostly white women. Um, yeah, it's true. mostly thin, most mostly thin white women, right? That's um, true. So, you know, diet culture even seeps into, you know, the anti-diet space, right? Mm-hmm. Just because of the structure of our culture. Um, yeah, I mean, I find, you know, working in eating disorder treatment, as you can imagine, the field is very female dominated. Um, and it's one of the reasons I love that um, at Equip, for instance, we have, in addition to all kinds of support groups for, for parents and, uh, and guardians, we also have a weekly men's group 
that's just for dads and other male caregivers. Um, and, and I think having that space is especially important because most of their other interactions in with an eating disorder treatment program for their child is going to be with women. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really a great safe space for men to ask the questions that they may be thinking like, is this the wrong thing to say? But in this space, um, they're safe to ask those questions and get support and really build skills, right? I think that, mm-hmm. um, I think becoming anti-diet or body positive can feel very like amorphous. Like, what does that mean? And having really concrete skills of what to say, how to say it, how to stay calm in the moment. I think that is helpful to everyone. And I think it's for especially a lot of men can, can really feel like, okay, I I get that I can work through these, these skills and support my child better. Um, and of course, FEAST, um, the parent organization for families of kids with eating disorders also has a men's group as well. So for any dads out there, if you have a child struggling with an eating disorder, there's sort of dad-specific support out there, um, and I hope you can access. Oh, good. Yeah, that's that's great to know that those that those are available because you know I've talked in my men's group with some of the the guys and and they've shared how nice it is to have a men's group talking about these things because they some of them have been involved in other groups, but they were literally the only guy, and they felt like you know they were welcome. They were certainly welcomed in. But they were only allowed at a certain depth by and, and not intentionally, but it was just they felt like they were only allowed to get to a certain um, level with the other women because they just there were certain things that they couldn't relate to. And and uh, there's those walls, I think, between between us at different times where where we just feel more comfortable in an environment that kind of comes from that same understanding. I mean, we see it with. Um, ethnicities and all kinds of things, different cultural things, religions, you know, all of those kinds of things. There's a certain place where you feel much more relaxed and comfortable when you're around those that have very similar life experiences, shared shared beliefs, and all of those kinds of things. So, yeah, it's great exactly. to hear that. Yeah. I'll make sure to put some links to those things in the in the show notes. Also, um, have you seen any differences when the the child or the children that or in the household, maybe that where they have the concerns, whether they're male or or female. Um, like, are the are dads more or less concerned with sons versus daughters? Or I, I was kind of curious about that. Yeah, that's a. I was. I knew you were going to ask that question, and I've been thinking about it for a few days. I think it's so context specific. So, um, you know, and it really a lot of this comes down to sort of these body hierarchies that we've been taught. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, one thing in terms of recovery from an eating disorder, weight restoration is obviously a really, you know, for most people is a really important part of the process. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, regardless of kind of where you fall on the spectrum of weight, right. It's almost always an important part. And, um, you know, dads feel protective of their kids, right. As all parents mm-hmm. do. And I think, um, you know, it might be easier for some dads to support their son to gain more weight, um, especially if they've got like, okay, he's going to get stronger and mm-hmm. he's going to be bigger because that's prized for for a lot of men. Um, I think they can have a harder time supporting, again, many exceptions to this, but right, it can right. be harder to support um, helping their daughter restore weight because they're afraid that it's going to make things harder for her. Um and so that's sort of one one difference I've seen. But I will say, dads have such a powerful impact on all of their kids' body image. Um, and I think 
dads have been kind of written off, right? That this is like the sort of like social emotional things and food. That's like mom's job. Um, and obviously I'm talking like about a very heteronormative oh, yeah. home environment yeah. here, but you know, that, that sense of like dads might feel like what role do I even have to play here? And I mean, obviously anyone listening to this podcast doesn't feel that way, but I hope um, they can spread the word that like, look, you know, a dad who's making fun of his, you know, his beer belly or who says like, I've got to, like you said, you know, get to CrossFit or um, like the world's going to end that making those comments, even about their own body, that's affecting their kids of all genders um, in their home. So really knowing that you make a big impact, how you relate to food and body, how you relate to exercise. And again, nothing against CrossFit, like per se. Yeah. Um, But I think dads might see their personal fitness project as like separate from the family. It's like this thing I'm doing for myself. You have to acknowledge that it's having an impact. And it's really your relationship with those activities that are the most important, the way you talk about them. It's not whether or not you're going to the gym. It's how do you talk about going to the gym? If you can't go, does it ruin your day? Do you say you can't have dessert because you didn't, Mm -hmm. you know, you missed your training session or what have you? Um, that's really about the language you're using and and sort of the, the energy that you have around that that thing. So it's something to to examine. And and again, just the bottom line: dads have an impact on, you know, kids of all genders in their home. Yeah, yeah. I think that that modeling aspect is so important, and it's really easy to overlook that. Uh, you know, I've heard lots of parents just talk about things as if their kids, uh, it just goes over their head. Or, or maybe they're young, uh, because I think it's easy to think that, oh, well, kids that are in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, they're not paying attention to that stuff, when in reality, they are watching very closely. I mean, we've seen some, there's some research uh, showing that very early ages, girls and, and boys too, but it, girls in particular are already starting to feel like their body is is too big and that they need to lose weight when they're seven or eight, nine years old. Uh, wanting to go on diets um actually just had had um one of the guys was talking about recently a um a, a friend that they have just saw what their son was looking up on the iPad the other day and uh he was looking up dieting and um on and he's 10 years old so a 10 year old boy was actually looking up how to diet and lose weight uh, specifically and he had no idea that that was even on on the kids radar and so it's it's just it's amazing and i think that what you said there about the um we often don't think of dads as having that same nurturing role that same emotional responsibility to developing that in the in the family and in their kids as a a normal dad thing but it should be and you know, we should be just as involved in the the feeding of our kids as, as, uh, as mom, obviously breastfeeding makes that a, that's a dip, little bit different picture there, but you know, in general, I think that, that we should. Yeah. And I think, you know, dads, you know, getting involved in the kitchen with kids and cooking mm-hmm. with kids, like can just be so powerful. Like I, my husband is an incredible cook and, you know, loves to teach the kids about food and skill, you know, skills in the kitchen and, there's so many ways that the dads can connect around food and just enjoying food together. Like you don't have to cook. It could be, this could be frozen pizza. Um, but just connecting with our kids over meals. I think that was one of the things, you know, during the first year of the pandemic, how many dads, mm-hmm. thought, wow, like 
having breakfast, lunch, and dinner with my kids every day was pretty amazing. Um, so I think more and more, again, again, a gender stereotype that that yeah. might have been less likely for them before. But, um, I, I think a lot of dads have really seen like how much joy and connection came out of those um, those meals, and even though things are somewhat back to normal or mostly back to normal now, mm-hmm. I think prioritizing family meals or you know, can be family time going out for ice cream, just eating together with kids and enjoying food and each other's company. Like that's a huge way for dads to have a positive effect on their child's relationship with their body, with food. Um, And we're not, you know, we're not counting the calories. We're not counting macros. We're just enjoying the food um, and having good conversation. And I mean, that's a skill dads already have, right? Mm -hmm. Just hanging out with your kids and enjoying food together. I mean, that can go a really long way. Yeah, that's great. And I've, you know, I've had several guys come to me to work on their relationship with food. And it's it's interesting to see that there are a lot of guys that are really uh, interested in making sure that their kids don't end up in the same spot that they are with theirs. Uh, in fact, a, a number of them have have turned around a lot of our time to work on, hey, what can I do with my kids instead of focused in on just them? And I think that's that's been really cool to see that because as we're working on their relationship with food and their body and that kind of thing, they're saying, Hey, well, what can I do with, with my kids or, or my, my kids are struggling in this area. Do you have any advice for that? And so that's been really cool to see them actually start really take that interest in it. And, um, and I guess any guy who's listening to this, I would hope that they would, that's that to me, that is a very manly thing to do. And I guess part of that is I was, the kind of household that I was raised in with my dad, he was very much a nurturing, caring, compassionate person, but he was extremely strong. Uh, you know, this is a person who literally never raised his voice at me or my mom ever. Uh, but, but you just couldn't help but respect him and, you know, and, and everyone around him respected him. And yet he didn't m- match what typical, what society typically calls a, you know, man's man kind of thing. But yet, that's what he was. And I think that more, more men would really benefit their families if they would see the nurture those aspects of their, their character and and how they interact with their kids to really help with this. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about the dad's relationship with food and exercise and body and stuff, but I, I was kind of curious, have, have you seen any, um, any things like their their relationship with their work life or leisure time or anything like that impact the the other members of the family in the area of food and body image so it's it's easy to say okay well focus in on my how i talk about food and stuff but not really go beyond that do do you see those other areas as potential areas to address too yeah i think i think it kind of goes back to the you know, fitness or gym pressure, I think, um, you know, definitely parents all need more leisure time <laughs> to mm-hmm. spend time, um, you know, not doing work or not taking care of a home or family. Um, I think I would encourage dads if, if all of your leisure time is exercise, um, to, to take a look at that. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, you know, for some dads, that's, it's a really big part of their identity. Maybe they run a couple of marathons a year or, you know, or maybe, you know, to me, there's a difference between that and say, oh, maybe you're doing it in a running group, right? So when there's a social aspect, I think obviously that 
can have a different flavor to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think just looking at maybe how, if there's a rigidity to um, an exercise routine, like can dads show they can be flexible? Um, you know, maybe it's, you know, there's a birthday party, like maybe dad misses, you know, that whatever, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to take their kid to the party instead of mom, right? Just to to show that exercise and I'm picking exercise because I think that tends to be like that's the weekend warrior like that is often what adults have to like we have to find the time to exercise on the weekends um but when that is always the sort of like that's the sacred thing that kind of gets in the way of other family time I think just something to look at like is there some flexibility you can build into that or include your kids like maybe it doesn't have to be um, a physical activity that you can easily quantify or track um, maybe it's just shooting hoops in the driveway with your kid or going on a family walk or hike um, to include the kids in that activity. But it's not a like, I have to move my body or, or else or like that burn and earn mentality. Um, so that's what comes to mind when I hear that question. Yeah, I like that a lot. I think that's a, um, as you were talking about, like the the kids birthday party thing, something that came to mind for me was it. it Okay, so you can't, you know, you don't do your workout at the normal time. You go ahead and go to the other event. But I think a lot of times we make up for it. So we go later. So we make sure that we don't miss it and we kind of maneuver things around so we don't miss it instead of giving, showing them that, you know what, it's okay to, to do that. You know, I mean, obviously, if you're an Olympic athlete in training, even then though, missing a workout is not going to, to make or break you. But, uh, I think it's really easy for us to get caught up in that mentality too, where it's, um, yeah, I'm flexible, but I still won't ever miss. And that kind of a, a of a, of a thing. Um, last night was a good example for me personally. Um, uh, I had Ninja, which I love. I, I look forward to it every week and I had a Ninja class last night, but my nephews and brother-in-law and sister-in-law came over for dinner and I just, Missed, you know, they were like, oh, uh, you have Ninja pretty soon, don't you? And I said, no, nah, I'm not going tonight. I'm eating hot dogs, hamburgers, and ice cream. So that's that was what I did instead. And and I'm glad I did. It was a it was a, a great time. And I think that that that's a, a good perspective to have on that. Yeah, modeling that flexibility and mm-hmm. um yeah, and again, not to, you know, I'm all about I, you know, I used to coach sports. I was an athlete. Yeah. I love to move my body. I'm not mm-hmm. saying like stop exercising if it's something you enjoy. Like, um, yeah, it's it's really about finding that that balance or that flexibility. Yeah, I think so. Well, um, not to kind of overgeneralize, but a lot of us guys, uh, me, <laughs> a lot of us like specific things to do, not to do that kind of thing, and you know, understanding that there's no right way or to do things. Obviously there's nuance in every family and every situation. I'm I'm sure that there's some things that apply to many of us, but what are some specific things that dads should avoid doing to help establish a safe home, healthy home? And then what are some things that dads can kind of begin to specifically do? Maybe just some, uh, your, your favorite top tips, I guess might be a good way to put it. Well, I'm thinking about when you were talking about your dad and the respect that he kind of earned from the family. Um, I think because of the way a lot of us were raised, um, if kids um, aren't eating certain things at the table or, you know, or or cleaning their plate or whatever it is, I think dads can feel like that's a sign of disrespect, right? Mm -hmm. Like, hey, I've prepared this meal. Um, This is what's for dinner. And 
Um, if you don't eat the way I think you should eat, that that's a sign of disrespect. And I com- like I understand that perspective. And I would encourage dads to think about let's let's try to focus this on respecting your child's body, trusting mm-hmm. their own body, listening to their intuition, their inner wisdom, and knowing that they can trust that we give them that unconditional love and positive regard. You know, again, regardless of what they look like, how much they eat, like all these things that they know they can always count on us to um, to be there for them and that it doesn't become this kind of power struggle at the t- dinner table, um, which I think is a tendency in a lot of homes, right? That maybe it's maybe it's not the clean plate club. So I think a lot of us had that when we were kids. A lot of parents were like, I don't want to do that to my kids. Um, but there may be, you know, you have to finish your broccoli before you can have dessert. Right. Or mm-hmm. um, maybe the pressure is more subtle. Maybe it's like, well, you know, if you want to be strong, you're going to have to eat more protein. Right. And it's sort of like this more subtle pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one thing that dads can think about is think about the power dynamic between you as the father and your child at the table. And thinking about concepts like consent and bodily autonomy. Right. Mm-hmm. And what you want your kids thinking is if they're in a situation where their body is telling them one thing, someone bigger and stronger and more powerful is telling them another, who do you want them to listen to? Um, do you want to set the stage where you can kind of pressure or overpower someone to do something they don't want to do? Mm-hmm. And obviously this can have all kinds of implications for relationships, right? In the future. Um, and so that would be, I know that's, Maybe that was like a really heavy topic to bring up, but I think no, not at all. Um, framing it as like, what do you really, what strengths do you want your child to have, um, and how can you start to foster them? So, like, even things that are happening at the dinner table extend far beyond, you know, that meal. Like, these are mm-hmm. really life skills that you're that you're passing along. Um, so, you know, the shorter version of that is, um, you know, if you're used to sort of having to use bribes or threats or pressure to get your kids to eat. I think that's something to get some support with and figuring out ways, you know, whether it's through the concept of the division of responsibility that I know Mm -hmm. you talk about, um, fostering intuitive eating, um, maybe giving some more structure, but without restriction in your, the way you're feeding your kids and sit with that discomfort, right. Um, like, oh my gosh, they didn't eat their steak, but I still let them have ice cream. Like, what does that mean about me as a mm-hmm. parent, right? You're going to be uncomfortable. Um, so kind of prepare for that if you're going to make some of these changes. Yeah, I, I, I think it's where we need to, we need to really evaluate what things are moral issues and discipline issues and things that that need to be addressed in that from that context because obviously i know that you're not saying just let your kids do whatever they want and just listen to their body and if they don't feel like doing what you've asked them to just let them i know that's not at all what you're saying um but at the same time there is we need to be intentional so that they do learn that in and understand in those different contexts you know when a boss is pressuring them to do something that that's not appropriate or that's illegal or um or when a a a romantic relationship or a friendship where they're being pressured to to do something or or to stay in that relationship when they know it's really not good for them. And I think that it's really easy for us as parents to to just make everything black and white. Do what I tell you when I tell you. If I tell you to do this, then you need to just do it instead of thinking, well, how is that 
how is that going to develop them into a strong, self-supportive adult that's going to be able to stand up to injustices and to negativity, be resilient, but at the same time also do what needs to be done when there is an authority figure, you know, authority figure over them. And I, I think that can be a really difficult place to um to work. But I think one of the cool things with food is is that I I I think we often moralize it and it's one of those things that we can pretty much take that off and say, you know what, there's other areas where we can address these like do you need to do what you're told when you're told to do it. But around food, I guess I think I'm rambling a little bit here, but I, I'm kind of thinking with, you know, with the food thing, is that it's not disrespectful if your kid doesn't like your cooking. <laughs> I mean, that's that's not. And but to think that it is, is I think it's missing a, a big part of that uh, of that equation there. Right, right. And the kind of threatening them or pressuring them to eat it anyway. Mm hmm is there that comes at a cost, right? So yeah, maybe they eat, ate that meal, but what was the cost to the relationship, to their trust in their body, um, to their trust in you? Um, and yeah, I think, you know, not taking it personally, like you said, it's not about you, but, and I, I take your point too. It's not like, you know, your two-year-old's like, but my body doesn't want to take a nap. You yeah. know, <laughs> there are boundaries where we're going to be, you know, we're the parent, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think of, you know, hunger and fullness you can never know someone else's hunger and fullness. Yeah. A two a two year old can't always know their fatigue level either, right? And that's mm-hmm. where they need you know you, really young kids do need that structure, right? Um, but you also can't make someone fall asleep, right? Mm-hmm. You can set the stage for lights out at eight p.m. for your you know elementary school kid or whatever. You can't actually make them fall asleep, right? Um, you you know you can again set the environment. Um, so I think of you know, with, with hunger and fullness, it's a little bit like, you know, having to use the bathroom, right? You can't know or how thirsty someone is. Like you can't actually know what someone else is experiencing in their body. And we can, we can create structure without restriction that creates a good framework. that's going to make family life go a little more smoothly, mm-hmm. um, but still letting the ultimate decision um, around food rest with the child. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of parallels, I think, emotions. You can't, you you don't know what's truly going on inside your kid's head. You're not sad. Just, you know, stop, stop being sad. Stop feeling that way. You shouldn't feel that way when they, in reality, they do. And we need to help them learn how to work around those feelings, work with those feelings and sit with them and deal with them and work their way through them instead of telling them not to feel that way or to stop it. And I think it's really easy for us to, demand a certain behavior, see that behavior, and then be satisfied that that what is a, appearing in front of us is is good when in reality there's so much under that uh, behind the scenes that's being suppressed uh, instead of instead of really addressing it from a strategic and an intentional perspective as a as a parent. Yeah, and as you're talking, I'm thinking about one of my favorite lines about parenting and setting boundaries. And that is conveying to kids that all emotions are welcome, mm-hmm. but all behaviors are not. Yeah, I love right? that. That like mm-hmm. that, you know, anger, welcome. Let me hear it. But you know, maybe you have rules about we don't slam doors or we don't call each other names, or like you have family boundaries about the expression mm-hmm. or the behaviors around that. 
um, but really welcoming emotions. And I think going back to sort of the, the gender stereotypes that a lot of us have grown up with, you know, a lot of men weren't given permission to express a full range of emotions when they mm-hmm. were growing up. Um, you know, there's one emotion that men have always been, men and boys have always been given permission to express, and that's anger, mm-hmm. right? So I think a lot of times, to your point about like your dad never raising his voice, you know, for a lot of men that I've worked with, their fear around their child's um, eating disorder or body image issues or their sadness about what's happening to their their child comes out as anger mm-hmm. um, because that's sort of the avenue that they're used to expressing hard feelings through. Um, so that's sort of like a maybe deeper work for a lot of men to kind of mm-hmm. build their own like emotional range and vocabulary. And there are a lot of things that, you know, they haven't been given permission to express or to feel. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- it's a, it's a, it's a process. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's really interesting. We just had this conversation in the, in our men's group and, and, um, and about this and, and one person was expressing how they've never felt comfortable expressing anger like that. That was a, an emotion that they weren't supposed to express. And I think, and then I, it was interesting. I'd never even thought of it myself. And I realized that, that it wasn't that I wasn't allowed to, um, but I always, I always felt like expressing anger wasn't really something that we should ever do. Cause well, for one, I didn't see it in my dad, but I also know that he wasn't suppressing anger when he was angry about something, you knew it. He just didn't raise his voice to express it. But, um, but at the same time, I, I, I just, I, at 51, I just now realized that, that I actually don't, I don't allow myself to express anger. Uh, I always minimize it when I'm having a difficult conversation with somebody. I always kind of tiptoe around what I'm really trying to get through to them. My, my daughter, you know, she says, you know, I'm, she still says it at 25. She tells me I'm a pushover, which I am. And I think that that's part of, of what's happened with that. And hey, I'm, I'm much less than I used to be. But at the same time, it's, it's really interesting to, to explore that. So it's, I think the the generalization of the ex, having this wide range of emotions that we're comfortable expressing that, that vocabulary that you talked about is so important. And and doing that that deeper work, I know you know some of the guys I work with have therapists also, and I think that that's super helpful for them, not just to deal with food, but if that's an area where you feel like you're struggling as a parent, that may be another avenue to pursue too. Maybe even before working on your relationship with food. Yeah, and I think so much of this is almost can be reparenting ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. As we're, um, you know, whatever we whatever our parents weren't able to give to us, we can, you know, it sounds kind of you know maybe a little corny or a little woo woo, but, Mm -hmm. but I, I have seen it happen, right. Mm -hmm. Where we can give ourselves maybe the permission or the skills that now that we didn't get when we were, when we were young. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's important. Well, as we kind of get toward the end here and wrap up, I'd love to hear your thoughts because I know this probably applies to so many families since so many families are not your, your, you know, stereotype traditional mom and dad together and, you know, that kind of thing. So what, what are your thoughts uh, about families and how they can navigate all of this when when mom and dad are not together or mom and mom, dad and dad, or, or when you have a blended family, those kinds of things? You know, what are what are some some ways that you've helped people and, and even challenges? Just uh, maybe talk about that issue to some degree. Yeah, I think um, where I've worked the most on this issue is around eating disorder recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, because 
as you know, eating disorders can be very manipulative, not, not the person with the eating disorder, but the eating disorder mm-hmm. itself as like an almost separate entity can be very manipulative and, and split, you know, different parents. And that can happen under one roof. But when there's two separate households, there's even more room for the eating disorder to say, oh, but dad said I, you know, I had enough today. I don't need to eat anymore. Or, oh, mom said I could swap, you know, boost for dessert today. And, you know, the eating disorder is always looking for little kind of cracks in the system, right? That's trying to eradicate the eating disorder. What's really helped in those situations is using technology like a Google Doc to share like, you know, here's what the parameters are that the treatment team has given us. We're going to log all the meals, you know, and flag anything for the other parent, right? Mm-hmm. So I've seen parents do incredible work. They agree on very few things, but when their child is in this health crisis, mm-hmm. really coming together and making sure they're presenting a united front around this particular issue. It doesn't have to mean everyone's doing things exactly the same way, but when it comes to like mm-hmm. the bottom line of, of recovery, really really being firm and supporting each other, you know, again, presenting that parental alignment, even when you're not aligned on other things, you know, I'm a big fan and for any, for the sort of the not an eating disorder, but just for, let's say two households or a blended family where people are coming in with different food values or food beliefs, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a fan of having the uncomfortable conversation, right. That, you know, maybe parents saying, Hey, it looks like we're kind of on kind of coming at this from, two different angles. Let's talk about it. Not I'm right and you're wrong because that mm-hmm. doesn't tend to go very well. Right. Um, but like where can, you know, and expressing why you care about it. Like it might sound like, you know, as you know, I have an eating disorder history and I really, you know, our kids are more genetically vulnerable. Let's talk about how we can protect them. Or, hey, have you heard rates of eating disorders? Uh, kids of all genders are skyrocketing. Like, you know, could we listen to the same podcast and talk about how we can mm-hmm. maybe lower the risk for our kids. So again, just, you know, using those sort of common sense communication strategies to get things out in the open. I think the unsaid, like the elephant in the room or the walking on eggshells, I mean, that's a really awful way to live. And kids pick up on the, the unsaid or the unspoken tensions or secrets. Like that's the scariest thing for them. Um, so if you're at odds with you know another adult in your child's life around food, like your kids know that, mm-hmm. let's talk, get some support. Let's talk about it. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And yeah, putting putting our own needs and interests aside in that and focusing the attention on on the child through that. Um, obviously, it's not neglecting all of our our own needs, but at the same time, it's you know maybe. I've heard heard often parents are still planning to engage in their activity, their exercise activities or their diet that they've been on because they're perfectly fine with it or they feel like they are, but they've set that aside in the interest of of making sure that they're that the focus is on the child and what they're going through and what they need. So they're, you know, they they relax on that, put it on the back burner and and uh for a time at least so that they can make sure that the the kids getting good modeling of relationship with food and all of those kinds of things. And I'm sure that's got to be just a, a really difficult area to navigate. It seems like it could drive a wedge between couples and, but I can also see how to have the exact opposite and pull them even tighter together. So I, I know I've heard stories 
of families becoming super strong through going through that experience together. And then also you hear the, the, the sad stories of break breaking apart. So, uh, I think that that advice that you gave today and on, on everything you talked about would be so helpful in helping the families to pull together rather than distance themselves. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. So, well, how can people find um, more about you and if they'd like to work with you? Yeah, so if, if parents realize they want some more one-on-one support or maybe a mm-hmm. couple or co-parents want some support around talking about food, talking about bodies, even if an eating disorder isn't even on your radar, but you just realize, oh, I think we're kind of far apart or we want to mm-hmm. make some changes and we want some support. That I also do that work. Um, or as you said, if, if an eating disorder, if there is a diagnosis and you know, you're navigating treatment, things like that, that's also what I do. Um, so the best thing is to go to my website, which is just una at unahanson.com. Mm-hmm. I always say when in doubt, it's an O. So uh, unahanson.com and then I'm on most active on Instagram and there I'm at Una underscore Hansen. There's a baby named Una Hansen out there. So if you see it's a baby, that's <laughs> not me. Um, I also sometimes get pretty spicy on Twitter. I'm Una Hansen there. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I also have a, a, a small but growing um, private Facebook group called Parenting Without Diet Culture. So that's a place where parents can post questions and get support. Um, and I, you know, I drop in podcasts, articles, um, you know, webinars and other events that I think are relevant to parents who are, who are doing this work. So that's another place that folks can find me and get support. Oh, great. Yeah. Lots of different options there. And that's great that you have different ways that people can, can de- depending on the means that they have available and, and all of that kind of thing, because that's, that's definitely a challenging thing when you're already dealing with other things going on. So um, yeah, well, thank you so much for taking the time to share your wisdom and your insight here with us. And uh, it, it, it's it been very eye-opening and very helpful. And, and I've really greatly appreciated the work that you do and and all of the free content that you share all the time. It's always, I, I would say it's definitely some of the most helpful, practical and uh, stuff that's out there. So I highly encourage anybody who's listening to definitely give her a follow. Thank you so much. 